2 Corinthians uh, chapter 8, and as we continue going through the exposition of this section of the letter, which is all dealing with financial propriety and generosity, uh, we're going to continue to just go through this text, okay? Why don't we pray one more time for the text of Scripture, and uh, we will be ready to begin. Let's pray. Father, Lord, um, I just stand up here today, Lord, sensing a complete and utter sense of inadequacy. Lord, because your word is so profound, because the ministry is so sobering, Lord, and because the calling is so high, the qualifications are so clear, Father, I just stand up here today, Lord, in need of your grace, in need of your mercy. And Father, I pray for mercy and grace to be extended to your church as we hear your word today, God, as I preach your word, I pray that you would impart grace to these who hear. And Lord, I pray that you would mature our church and sanctify us and grow us up into the stature, even to the fullness of Christ. And so give us more of his attitude, his perspective, his mind. Give us more of the mind of Christ in our own lives and in our own church. Be glorified as we look at your word in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So what I want to talk about today is Paul's financial advice for the church. And I touch, I, I use that word advice because as you notice there in verse 10, that's sort of the way he conditions the context. He says, I give my opinion in this matter. Now, if you go back up to verse 8, there's actually another verse that goes along with the, the thought of this or the tone of this. And what he says, I am not speaking as this as a command, but as proving through the earnestness of others, the sincerity of your love also. So many of the principles that we find right here in chapter 8 and in chapter 9 are owing to Paul's advice. He's not saying that he got a revelation from the Lord Jesus to command them in a certain way. He's not saying that he's issuing forth some uh, uh, apostolic uh, uh, edict that they have to follow. But in other words, Paul is giving them his pastoral advice, wisdom. He's trying to impart wisdom to them in this matter that is so incredibly important. You know, I think at times we look at this passage and you hear me mention the Jerusalem collection, the Jerusalem uh, aid, the effort to give uh, financial aid to the poor saints in Jerusalem. And at times we tend to think, oh, it was, it's kind of like today you get up on stage, you take a collection, and then you go on and you give it to whoever needs it. No. Actually, this uh, transpired over years of time. Uh, Murray Harris in his commentary suggests four to five years to make this collection complete and, and interspersed throughout Paul's missionary journeys. So this is a huge, massive, a collective effort on the part of several churches. He's, arrest, he's already mentioned the Macedonians. And he's mentioned other churches in that region, Philippi. Uh, you think of, um, oh, my mind just went blank. But the, the, the Macedonia, uh, Berea, Thessalonica, churches like this that uh, were all part of this effort. And we know from the Corinthian experience that this effort to collect this money wasn't easy. It was, uh, it was embroiled probably in controversy. We're going to see that as we go on in the book, especially chapter 12, the insinuation, even by some, that uh, Paul was maybe even engaged in financial impropriety. He has to defend his integrity. So we're going to see that. But just to, 
just to sort of prime the pump to say, look, this is a massive, massive effort on the part of Paul to collect a lot of money for the sake of very, very needy Christians in Jerusalem. And what a picture of the gospel. Remember, we saw this. What a picture of the gospel that here are Gentile Christians and Gentile churches getting together to provide aid for Jewish Christians. It's everything that the gospel said it would produce. That there is no distinction between Jew and Gentile, male or female, slave or free, barbarian, Scythian. We are all one in Christ. And this is just an expression, if you would, of their unity. But uh, in his advice, he gives them several things that biblical generosity ought to be. Number one, it ought to be intentional. Again, look with me in verse 10. He says, I give my opinion in this matter, for this is to your advantage, who were the first to begin a year ago, not only to do this, but also to desire to do it. But now, finish doing it also, so that just as there was readiness to desire it, so there may also be completion of it on, uh, by your ability, by your ability. So once again, Paul begins by setting forth this idea of being resolved to complete the good thing that they began. And that's what I mean by intentional. They had to engage in this effort to give. And let me just say this also as a caveat to all of this, okay? I know that what this passage is talking about is an individual collection for an individual group of people in a specific situation. And it is not reflective of the normative giving of the local church. However, all of the principles that are found in this text have been universally used as principles of giving in the local church. And I think that's right. Because much of this has to do with the heart. Much of it has to do with the attitude of giving. Now, Paul begins, as he gives his opinion, he says, by setting this whole thing in its proper light. He says, in reality, this collection is actually to your advantage. I think that's just remarkable. It's remar- in other words, the Corinthians stand to gain from their giving. They stand to gain from their giving. They stand to gain because they need to be resolved in their giving. They stand to gain because in the finishing of it, in the doing of it, they will prove their love. They will prove their sincerity, verse 8. They will prove that they are genuinely concerned like the other Christians around Macedonia. They will prove that they are selfless, that they are serving. They're going to prove that they are considerate of others. So many good things. God is sanctifying these Corinthians through this effort. He says they desire to do it, therefore there was an eagerness. That goes along with this idea of intentional. Are we eager? Think about it. And as we go through the text here, we are going to culminate on this idea that giving actually comes back to you. And I know that's kind of a very touchy subject today, right? When you talk about you know, giving in order so that you can be blessed, as if the more you give, the more you should expect to be, be blessed. And we know that the prosperity movement has taken that principle and perverted it beyond recognition. But the biblical principle is also clear that he who sows sparingly will reap sparingly. 
And I could just tell you, over the years, just the, 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 that my personal experience in, in the pastorate has been that oftentimes, in a very interesting way that, the God, that God and His providence works, it is oftentimes those families who struggle in their giving, who struggle in their financial uh, life. They struggle to meet their bills because they're struggling to be faithful and giving at church. I don't know, for some way, God has set it up this way, that this is the way it ought to be, that as you bless, you will be blessed. As you give, God will give to you. As you supply the needs of others, the needs of the local church, somehow in the providence of God, your needs will be met. Your needs will be met. But is it any wonder that we have a a whole doctrine of giving, right? A whole theology, because the Bible gives us a full-orbed worldview Not only what to do with your singing, with your zeal, with your evangelizing, with your ministry, with preaching, with teaching, but God is also concerned what you do with your wallet, what you do with your bank account, what you do with your money. God is also interested in those things. And that to me is a great encouragement that we serve a God who is intimate, who wants to to dominate every area of your life. His sovereignty extends beyond just what goes on in your heart. It extends to the practicality of every area of your life, your employment, your paycheck. Yeah, this is, this is our God. He's involved in all of it. But these Corinthians were intentional in that they first desired to do it. So Paul sort of seizes on that. He seizes on this idea that they desire to do it, and now he admonishes them to finish it, to bring it to completion. That which began, as he says here, over a year ago, now he says, complete it. Bring it to its intended end. That's what it ought to be. It ought to be done with the understanding that there is a blessing in store for them if they do it. As our Lord Jesus said in Acts uh, 20, 35, quoted there as saying, it is more blessed to give than to receive. It is that's the kind of heart that Paul is trying to produce in this church. It's all about the heart. That's all that God cares about. He doesn't care how much you give. He doesn't care if you earn $150,000 or if you earn $50,000 or, like most of us, less. He cares not how much you gave, how big the check was, how, how, how huge, you know, how impressive the, the amount was. He cares about the heart. Do you see your giving as worship? Do you see your giving as a spiritual offering? Or do you just see it as a necessary mechanism to be involved in this Christian thing? No, it is worship. And that's why Paul wants them not just to be ready to do it, but to go all the way, finish doing it. And what a word for us, right? It's one thing to desire to be faithful in giving. It's one thing. You know how many times I've heard people tell me, I really got to get back to giving to the local church. I really need to get back to start, you know, setting aside that which I really want to give. You know, talk is cheap, right? Put your money where your mouth is. Give to the Lord in faith, believing that you're doing the will of God and that God's going to bless you for that. You know that God blesses obedience? God delights in blessing obedience. And this is one area that demands for some people more than others a lot of faith. You know, the problem often is is trust. A lot of times we just don't trust God. We just, we don't trust Him with that money. 
We think if we give in that way, that amount, that which God has put in your heart, purposed in your heart to give, that, oh no, then what, how will I make ends meet over here? How will I get the things I want over here? So you've got to prioritize rightly. That's why he says that they were ready, and so therefore they should be resolved to complete it. But now, look at this, because Paul really walks a razor's edge here. He exhorts them, yes, not only to be ready and to desire to do it, but also to complete it, but then he qualifies it very carefully with this phrase, by your ability. You see that? By your ability. In other words, Paul is not trying to lay some burdensome trip on the Corinthians. He's not trying to put them out. He's not trying to cause them harm. There's a way to do this, right? It's one thing to be sacrificial. It's another thing to be irresponsible, right? It's one thing to give with joy and gladness, and it's another thing to give with gullibility, you got to remember, you have other duties and other responsibilities to the Lord. And we'll talk about that more and more. But here, he just, he wants them to be aware. And that's one thing I want you to see, is that this is the type of Christians we ought to be. We ought to be cognizant, aware. We ought to be able to recognize when there's a need. You talk about a special need like this context is talking about, that's the type of Christians we ought to be. We can spot a need, and we react to that need, we respond to that need, and we fill the need. So we need to be aware. You know, Scripture talks about this everywhere. Generosity is others-focused. That's what it is. We are called upon over and over in Scripture to care for one another, to serve one another, to provide for one another. Let me just give you one text this is in the New Testament wisdom literature, the book of James. He says, if a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, and yet you do not give them what is necessary for their body, what use is that? Now, we know in the theology of James that such inactive faith is worthless, is worthless, your faith has to be backed up by deeds. Your faith has to be backed up by deeds. Christian generosity, therefore, presupposes Christ-like compassion. You have an eye to see. You have ears to hear. You have a heart that is responsive. It cannot possibly be that you have a regenerate heart and you shut your heart to your brother or your sister in Christ. That's an oxymoron. It doesn't go together, and we'll see a lot more of this later on in this epistle. But it remains to be said that this principle is concerned with believers supplying the basic resources of others when need be. He is not wanting to provide luxury for these other saints. He's not saying, well, you make $50,000 a year. They only make thirty. Bring them up to fifty. That's not what he's saying. He's saying that there was a, a legitimate need where even the basic resources of life, food, clothing, maybe shelter, were lacking. And that's what we should be ready, eager, eager. If we hear in our church that so-and-so can't even put food on the table, we ought to respond instantly. We shouldn't even hesitate. We shouldn't even think about it. What? What do you mean so-and-so is about to lose their house and they're going out on the street? No way. 
I remember a pastor friend of mine once had to help a family, a missionary family, who were in financial uh, duress, just a terrible situation financially. He brought the whole family into his house. And when I say he brought the whole family into his house, I'm talking about eight kids in a 1,400-square-foot home. <laughs> that, what a picture. I tell you what, that sent shockwaves throughout the church. And I remember all of the various you know, thanksgiving to God that resulted from that. That's really what it is. The second thing, gener- generosity not only ought to be intentional. We've got to be aware. We've got to be ready. We've got to complete uh, 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 any, any act of of serving in this way, but it also ought to be proportionate. And that just goes along with what he said about ability. So he, he transitions by using the word ability in verse 11 to, to transitioning to what he really wants to talk about, and that is equality. Notice there, verse 12, he says, For if the readiness is present, it is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. For this is not for the ease of others and for your own affliction, but by way of equality. By way of equality. Now, I want you to focus your attention on that word there, acceptable, because it's a unique word, as a matter of fact. He's already used the word back in chapter 6, and that's a different word. Here, it's a compound word, which means there's an intensity to the word. It's something like, like well acceptable, I guess is how I, it uses a prefix, ooh, which anytime you see ooh attached to various verbs, it means something like good or well, okay? Like it is God's good pleasure. It uses this prefix, so it intensifies the word to mean something like it is fully acceptable. It is very much acceptable, and then the question remains, we have to supply Uh, some sort of implied object here. Acceptable to who? Acceptable to the Jerusalem saints? Acceptable to Paul? Acceptable to the the apostles? Uh, I would agree with most commentators that it is acceptable first and foremost to God. It is acceptable to God, and, and interspersed throughout this whole context is language of worship like that, which makes me think over and over again, wow, my offerings are worship to God. It is worship, and that's why you've got to be intentional about it. That's why you have to be uh, uh, involved, engaged. You have to be really, really focused on your giving because it is part of your worship. You want it done in the right heart. You want it to be done in the right spirit. You want it to be done in a way that you, you can rest assured this is well-pleasing to the Lord. I haven't become irresponsible. I haven't become forgetful but I've become resolved in my giving. That's beautiful when that happens. When giving, in this, in this you know, instance in the context of a local church, when giving is just non-negotiable, that's when Christian maturity, I believe, takes place. But when it's sporadic and it's irresponsible and it's haphazard, there's no faithfulness there. And that's not fair to the other believers in the church. It shouldn't be that 20% of the people in the church bear the financial burden of the whole church. Every single person should be doing his own part, bearing his own load, as Paul says in Galatians chapter 6. Because Paul is calling for proportionate giving, and since he qualifies it as readiness with balanced ability, there's no doubt in the apostle's mind that this type of 
generosity is acceptable to God. Let me give you what one commentator said. This is David Garland, his commentary. He says, whatever they give generously, he assures them it is acceptable to God. God does not accept the widow's might, all that she has to live on, but God does expect generosity and giving gifts without a begrudging spirit. What matters to God is only what is in the giver's heart. Think about that. In the Corinthians case, the smallest gift is greater than the grandest intention that goes unfulfilled. Do you see that? It's one thing to talk about what you plan on doing, and you can talk a big talk, but, but regardless of the gift, big or small, as long as it's done with the right heart, that's what pleases God. That's what pleases God. But he also says, look, it's proportionate because it is not for the ease of others and your affliction. What, is this, what does this mean? Well, obviously, it's not saying, look, you have to put yourself in harm's way in order to alleviate the other person's suffering. That's not what he's calling for. Neither is he saying, look, you need to come together and everybody needs to divide up all of their resources evenly, like some kind of community, you know, uh, uh, you know, sort of communistic setup or Marxism or communal living or anything like that. You know, amazingly, some people go to Acts chapter 2, verse 45, to try to prove that. But what was going on there was not, hey, everybody put everything together in one pot and divide it up evenly. If you look at the text carefully, it talks about fulfilling needs. In other words, they refused to allow anyone to go without and they would give whatever resources they had in order to make sure that no one was left impoverished. And I think that's the mentality here. It's not the obliteration of statuses, as if there's no such thing as a rich Christian and a poor Christian, or a less wealthy Christian, or a Christian that just simply is not wealthy. We know that from Scripture. Proverbs chapter 10, verse 22, says that, that, that the riches are a gift of God. In 1 Timothy chapter 6, he actually gives instructions to the rich. And very quickly here, let me just read that to you. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 17, because he gives specific instructions and exhortation to the wealthy. He says, instruct those who are rich in this present world not to become conceited or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. What a perfectly balanced uh, statement there by the Apostle Paul, isn't it right? He, he's not ignorant of the danger of being rich. Now, I want you to see that. Being rich is wildly dangerous. Being rich can lead you to conceit. It can lead you to put your hope in the wrong place. It can take your hope away from God. It can make, it can give you, if you're not careful, a sense of self-sufficiency, self-adequacy. It can give you this idea that you are the reason you are wealthy, and it is not. You have to keep, you have to constantly keep your heart in check. If you're rich, you have to make sure, are you trusting God or are you trusting your riches? But then, Paul also says, God gives us richly, He richly supplies us with everything to enjoy. There's also nothing wrong with enjoying what God has given you. You know, I'm thankful that God has, by His sovereign grace, made some Christians rich and some Christians not rich. I can think of one famous Christian 
who used his riches for the glory of God, and that is J. Gretchen Machen. You know that he, Machen was a wildly rich person, and with his money, he began Westminster Seminary. And we are all grateful today, even though we're not Presbyterian, we're still grateful. Grateful for Van Til, we're grateful for John Murray, uh, some of you anyway at least, right? <laughs> grateful for some of the other guys that have come out of there, many guys. Artaxerdia came out of Westminster, um, so many good men. Bonson came out of Westminster. Look, if it wasn't for Machen's generosity with the riches that God gave him, Westminster would have never got off the ground. So it's not what you have, it's how you hold it and what you do with it. That's what's important. That's what's critical. And so Paul's not calling the Corinthians to surrender their wealth. He's not calling them to take a vow of poverty. Far from that. He's saying, use your resources for the glory of God. Use your resources to bring aid to others. And you have to think in a gospel-centered way. Uh, real quick, turn with me to 1 John chapter 3. 1 John chapter 3, because I think no other New Testament author like John really sets this principle out of sacrifice, of giving, of helping others like John. John is a beautiful apostle. You know why? He speaks in black and white terms. We live in such a postmodern age, right, where everything's so ambiguous and nobody wants to stand on anything, you know? Don't get me started on, I was about to quote something that happened on Larry King, but I won't. But we know the truth. And uh, John doesn't mince any words. He knows the truth. He states the truth. He stands on the truth. He says, we know, this is verse 14, 1 John 3, 14. We know, this is, this is why I quoted this verse, because it's so cataclysmic. Not only does John speak in black and white terms, but everything is just cataclysmic for John, right? We know that we have passed out of death into light if we love the brethren. Well, that's, those are high stakes, you know that you're saved if you love the brethren, but then he's going to go on to uh, elaborate on this. He who does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. We, we know love by this. This is the litmus test, that he laid down his life for us. So it's a Christ-centered love, first and foremost. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. There is the Christian imperative or the Christian ethic flowing right, right out of Christ's own example. Verse 17, But whoever has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? How is that love if you don't open your resources to your brother or your sister who is in need of them? Little children, let us not love in word or with tongue, and I think there he means something like only, but in deed and in truth. In deed and in truth. Those go together. Those go together. It's not just enough to say that you were right in a matter. You have to have works that back up your convictions, that back up your example, your godliness. So what this shows is that biblical generosity begins with love. It begins with the love for the brethren that is so critical, all determinative. But, again, it's also balanced. It doesn't mean, look, you, 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 you take your money and you use it in an irresponsible way. You pay, you pay other people's bills while your bills are getting late. You take care of someone else's rent while you're late on your rent. 
That's not what it means. It doesn't mean empty your bank account and fill their bank account. So now that you have an empty, empty bank account where you're bouncing checks all over the place. Obviously, he's not calling them to this type of irresponsibility. He's calling them to equality. You're not struggling. You're not destitute of food and water and clothing and shelter. Why should they be? And why should you leave them in that condition? If it's within your reach to do something about it, do it. And don't hesitate to do it. Third, generous giving ought to also be reciprocated. Look at verse 13 and 14, and this is beautiful because embedded in all of this is a great promise in generosity. In other words, Paul advises them in a way that is filled with anticipation. Verse 14 says, and this, at this present time, your abundance being a supply for their need so that their abundance also may become, so now he's envisioning something, a supply for your need that there may be equality. So Paul is envisioning the possibility, maybe, that one day the tables will be turned. You will be in need, and they will supply your needs. You see, there is an anticipation for equality. There's an anticipation for, 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 for being in a position where they once were. In other words, this sentiment should be reciprocated. You've been given grace. You had better be ready to give grace. People have shown you generosity. You had better be ready to show people generosity. This only works if the church is functioning in a biblical, sound, and healthy, pure way. It is the, the principle of reciprocity. I love that word. It's a back and forth. It's a reflexive action. You know, you show generosity to others, and you should expect that one day, if need be, others should show you generosity. You should expect things from the body of Christ. You should expect that the body of Christ will not fail you. Should not fail you. And as long as I'm a pastor here, our church will not fail in meeting these kinds of needs in the lives of our people. Far be it from us that one of our church members would be out in the street and we don't take care of that. Or going hungry, they can't get groceries on the table and we don't rise to the occasion to supply that. Far be it from us. Now look at, at the very end here, Paul quotes an Old Testament passage, kind of sort of to support his whole argument in verse 15. As it is written, he who gathered much did not have too much, and he who gathered little had no lack. It's a really interesting text. He's quoting from Exodus, Exodus chapter 16. Now, the context of Exodus is a well-known context to us. It's the context of manna from heaven. The manna fell out of heaven, and it provided the people's needs. But you know what? He quotes this in the context of equality. That's what he says at the end of verse 14, that there may be equality. To prove that, here is Exodus 16. What? Well, if you look at the context of Exodus 16, boy, what a lesson for us anyway, right? You go to Exodus 16, and this is God answering the cries of his grumbling people. It's not like they had a prayer meeting all night praying for manna. They grumbled for it, and God graciously gave them that manna. And obviously, we know that what a beautiful picture of the coming feeding of God's people through Christ, that He is the bread out of heaven. But 
in this context, in the historical context, it is amazing because God gave Moses specific instructions on how the manna was to be gathered up. They weren't to go out trying to gather as much as Paul, hoarding it. There was to be equality in the way that things were gathered up. But even in verse 17, when the, when the manna is gathered, in verse 17, it seems to imply that it was gathered differently. Some people did gather more than other people. But this is what's remarkable, that in verse 18, it says, when the manna was measured, everyone had the same. In other words, it was God's way of bringing equality to the people. It was God's way of supplying everyone's needs. No one went without. I mean, think about it. You are a, oh boy, I'm afraid to say this. What's an old age without offending people? Uh, you're in your late 90s. <laughs> Right? You can't run as fast as the 20-year-old guy next to you. And he's just gathering buckets of manna. Okay? And you might get left out. He's getting all the cream of the crop. You're just getting the slim pickings. Okay, but at the end of the day, when the manna was counted, God made it so that everyone had the same amount. And that's what Paul is saying. He's using that as a proof text to show, look, God is going to supply the needs of everyone so that no one is going to go without. But you've got to abide by these principles. Let me just end the sermon today on this note. God made bread fall out of the sky for the Israelites. Why couldn't God make bread fall out of the sky for the Jerusalem saints? Why couldn't he just make gold coins appear in their homes? Why couldn't he just give them a, a full bank account? They just wake up and all of a sudden, you know, I know they didn't have ATMs or whatever back then, but all of a sudden they have all this food in the pantry, all this money under the bed. God can snap his fingers and do that, right? He sure can. But God does not do it that way. God does it in a way that there's a lot of struggle involved. Oh, man, there's a battle with the Corinthian church. Paul is engaged in all of this, what seems to be political problems. Listen, if you don't like the politics of the church, get out of the church. Because there's politics in the church. The church is not a perfect church. This is the church militant. This is not the church triumphant. We are not without sin. We are not without error. We are not without our problems and our hang-ups. You know, people come to church expecting this pristine church with no problems, no gossiping, no bickering, no backbiting. That's not the church. The church is filled with sinful people that do a lot of sinful things and that constantly need reminding, constantly need to be reminded, corrected, admonished. The author of Hebrews encourage each other every day. Why? Because tomorrow you are very, very likely to get off, off track. Just one day can undo your walk with God. You know that. And so we have to be in our lives encouraging one another. But be encouraged that this is the way that God has ordained much of our lives, the practical, normative outworking of His providence. Don't wait around for a voice in the sky. Don't wait around for a sign. Don't wait around for a miraculous paycheck in the, in the mailbox. Go to work. Work hard with your hands. Provide. Be a person of principle, a person that works hard for the glory of God. Say, so you don't understand. Why does it have to be like this? Why can't God just bless me? I've heard of other people that have been blessed that way. 
They wake up, there's a check in the, in the, in the mailbox. I mean, I could tell you stories like that. They usually find, you find them around, you know, charismatic circles, but it happens. I mean, John MacArthur, far from charismatic. John MacArthur tells a story how they went out to the hallway of the office one day and there was a bag full of gold coins and gold bars for the seminary, just like that. And God could do that at any time he wants, at any time. But remarkable that God has not chosen to do it this way. Be encouraged because he didn't do it for Paul all the time either. Sometimes God, who is not only able to provide for you miraculously, he also desires to sanctify you thoroughly. And without the trials, yes, financial trials in your life, you would not experience the sanctification that God has ordained for you before the foundation of the world. You have been predestined unto these trials. These things have been, these trials in your life, they have been perfectly, meticulously, sovereignly fashioned just for you. <laughs> that trial you went through this week has been fashioned just for you. Before the foundation of the world, God had a purpose in it. He, 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 and, and what's the purpose? You should know this because I keep repeating this phrase. All sanctification is Christ-likeness. There is no such thing as sanctification if it's not Christ-likeness. God is doing what? Conforming us more and more and more into the image of Christ. Had we not these types of nitty-gritty little trials that just kind of bite at your heels, you would not be as sanctified as God would desire for you. So be encouraged. God is in the details of our everyday lives. God is there. I just praise God for that. Brings me so much comfort and joy to know that when you go to work, Monday through Friday, those 40, 50, 60 hour weeks or whatever, God's with you. And God's involved in all the little details of your life. I love that. Our God is intimate and our God is sovereign. Let's pray. Father, Lord, help us to Lord, acknowledge our need to be generous. It doesn't come easy for some of us. For some of us, we're so worried of our own finances, we couldn't even dream of being generous. For some of us, we don't think about generosity at all. We don't do anything outside of the normative pattern of our giving. We never do anything outside of the box. We write the same amount on the check, and we're content with that. And Lord, as long as it's done with a pure heart, I'm glad to be content with that. But Lord, also, give us a radical edge to our giving. Make us risk-takers, not irresponsible risk-takers, but make us those that love to lavish generosity on one another. Oh, Lord, we pray, make us those types of people because we know that the Apostle Paul has already grounded all of this in the example of Christ, who although he was wildly, infinitely rich, but for our sake, he became poor. So Lord, I pray in a like manner, we pray that you would make us sacrificial in our giving, sacrificial in our generosity. Lord, all for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.